problem is that the distinction needs to be drawn between the competence of the economists and the correctness of their analysis. Welcome to the Mobile Dev Memo Podcast. This is your host, Eric Sufert. My guest on today's episode is Emmanuel DeMaestra, the founder and CEO of Scenario, a generative AI platform for creating game art assets. Prior to founding Scenario, Emmanuel founded Redbird, a drone analytics company. Emmanuel and I discussed the opportunity for generative AI to lead to radical personalization, the ability of products to tailor content experiences to the tastes and behaviors of individual users. Over the course of our conversation, we cover the ultimate goal of personalization in consumer products, what about gaming makes it a good candidate for radical personalization, how gaming teams are using generative AI for content production currently, how the job of a game designer changes as personalization tools become more embedded in game production, and what happens with gaming when personal value functions are realized for players. Please enjoy this conversation with Emmanuel DeMaestra. Emmanuel, how are you, sir? Good, good. How about you? I'm doing very well. You are in SF at the moment. You were not in SF for the holidays. You are back now. Is that correct? Yeah. I enjoyed Mexico for a couple of weeks. Back to the Bay Area now. Well, welcome back. Welcome to 2024. And I am very excited to be speaking with you today. So I have been writing about personalization for a while, and I am particularly interested in the promise that generative AI has for what I call radical personalization. So personalizing a product experience precisely for the tastes of an individual user in real time. I think that is probably a long-term vision, but I think it's a very realistic vision given the advances we've seen with a lot of the generative AI tools, including Scenario, the company at which you are the CEO. And full disclosure, I am an investor in Scenario, a very happy investor in Scenario. So I want to jump straight into the questions because I think this is going to be a fascinating conversation. But before I do, I have just introduced you in the, in the introductory segment of the podcast. But why don't you introduce yourself to the listeners in your own work? Sure. Again, my name is Emmanuel, uh, Emmanuel Demestre. People call me M. And I'm the CEO and one of the two co-founders of Scenario. We build a platform specifically for game developers and game studio so they can create highly consistent arts, highly consistent game assets, thanks to a custom-trained AI model. Think of it as a machine to train an infinite amount of custom AI model that will produce very, very style consistent content, i.e., objects, characters, themes, backgrounds, and like the, the list goes on and on. And uh, we've, um, we've started this about a year, a year-ish, a year and a half ago. Right now, we have 150,000 users. We've trained 60,000, 70,000 models right now. And we learn a lot from uh, all these early users that are fairly happy. That's great. So I want to start with a big, broad question for you, and then we'll go into kind of more pointed questions to, to lead the discussion. But, but to kick off, What's the goal of personalization in consumer products? So when you started Scenario, what was your sort of like long-term vision for what this technology could bring to consumer products? Definitely a broad question, but let me give you a, a snapshot of where Scenario came from. We started as a company that would let you scan anything in 3D from your phone. That was back in 2020 when Apple released a new sensor on the phone, a LiDAR, laser sensor we could use that sensor to scan your objects in your own environment in 3D. Like whatever, chair, statue, artwork, objects, anything could be scanned in 3D. 
And that was the initial way to start Scenario. Make, build your own environment, build, build your own metaverse by capturing reality, your reality with your phone. It turned out that people loved it, but scanning takes a while. It takes like minutes, you know, two minutes, three minutes, five, ten minutes. Prompting, on the other hand, AI would let a user make very personalized content in seconds. And that's why in 2022, we kept the same vision of letting people create their own content, but instead of scanning, they would prompt. So that's the introduction of like why Scenario believes in personalization. Then once you go into consumer product personalization, once a consumer has a personalized product, that means to me, much higher engagement uh, to the product that they're using, probably a much better satisfaction as well, and more value. So like the product is going to be more sticky, people will be more satisfied, and they're going to pay more. So I think definitely companies across the board should look for, should chase a higher personalization of their products. Yeah, I mean, that's the kind of impetus for me becoming really interested in this. I mean, it's always been something that I think was important, especially for gaming, right? I mean, that's my, my background is gaming. Gaming is, is more personalizable generally than a lot of other consumer products, right? Like you're, you're not going to, I don't know how personalized Zoom can get, right? I mean, but if you think about gaming, when you're talking about these pers- like, like virtual worlds, I mean, you, you really do have kind of like the, the most possible latitude for personalization. And, you know, the way that I'd implemented personalization in the past usually was around like discounts and, and price points. And that always, you know, that wasn't necessarily content. That was just the cost of content or the, or the, the bundle that you would offer somebody. And, and the reason we did that was to drive monetization, right? So that you could invest more in user acquisition. And well, the sort of impetus for me seeing personalization as, I think right now, an imperative for, especially for any gaming company, it, is, it was ATT, right? Because if the cost of acquisition goes up, you just have to monetize people more. And, you know, you don't just monetize people more apropos of nothing. It's not just raising the prices, it's actually giving them more, giving them more value. And how do you give someone more value? You personalize the product to their tastes. And so I think that's, that's probably a good segue to the next question is why start with game? So what about gaming makes it a good candidate for radical personalization? But the, the easiest answer is gaming spends a lot of money on content, right? 40%-ish, it can go even higher of a game studio goes into content. So the gaming industry needs non-stop content, whether it's for new titles or it's for you know existing titles that will be expanded into new levels and so on. That's one answer. Gen AI lowers the cost of creating content. So gaming, because they're so content heavy, will be one of the first industry to massively adopt AI at scale. Then the second stage of the rocket, the second reason why gaming makes so much sense when it comes to Gen AI for a Gen AI company, it's because UGC is definitely something big in gaming, right? Look at Roblox and Rec Room and, and Minecraft and like Fortnite now and, and so many others, right? UGC is a, is a thing. Uh, it wasn't a few years ago and it's becoming a thing. But UGC right now with the current technologies require a creator to know a bit about content, like know a bit about, I don't know, making words, making characters, making 3D, making art, making content, and so making videos and so on. JDI lowers the barrier for anyone to create content. And so it like basically JDI puts UGC in reach of any studio or any game developer. 
to for them to reach any creator, even if they don't have that much creative design capabilities. Does it make sense? It's really like lowering, making the access to UGC easier. So any studio, any game creator can now propose UGC-related feature in their games, thanks to Gen.AI, because AI makes it easy to create content in their game. So that's what we call AI-powered UGC, you know, AI-enabled player-generated content. And that's the holy grail. Like, it's so much more interesting to create it, uh, to let players create their own content than just letting the game developer creating a fixed amount of content with Gen.AI. It's a 100x bigger opportunity. But it's not an easy one, and sorry if it's a long answer. It's very, it's not an easy one because when you put Gen.AI in the ends of a player or a consumer, and you let that consumer create, you'd better make sure the AI will create very consistent content to what you want. You'd better control the AI, you know, and like tweak the model so it's really tailored to your brand, experience, game, art, design, and so on. And that's a journey. Right, because I mean, I guess if people could just, you know, sort of willy-nilly create stuff, uh, the game ends up being pretty chaotic aesthetically, and, and also, like, you could just break the mechanics. I mean, it, it could just create anything. That's super interesting. I hadn't really thought about it from that angle. But, yeah, I mean, it, I think the use case on the content production side for, like, live ops, right? Like, that's pretty, pretty straightforward. But actually giving this, you know, putting, putting these tools in the hands of the... Like, you, if you think about a game like GTA Online... Right. I mean, the GTA five, it's it, the wherewithal of that game is incredible considering how old it is. And a big part of that is the online component is people just playing in the sort of like open world. Now imagine, you know, and you can sort of like build your life or whatever there, but you have no real contribution with respect to like the in-game objects. I mean, you're just sort of stuck with what you've got. And you think about like the longevity of that game, if you, if a player could craft their own car or they could craft their own apartment building and, and it but it was it, but it was consistent aesthetically with the you know the broader theme and tone of of the game i mean you, you, that goes from being like a what a 10-year game to maybe a 20-year game or a 30-year game i mean you just get so much more value out of the content that they've created and without actually having to spend that much more money on content yep another reason why gaming is makes so much sense you can gather data on gamers more than you can gather data on other consumers using other products because gamers spend so much time in games and they have so much interaction with the game and with others that some system can learn from these interactions that can extract the preferences to to tailor the models or the prompts uh, that will be used in the game. I I don't even see a future where a player will prompt stuff in a game that's that seems very unfriendly like why would a player stop playing and start typing i want such a car or a potion and so on the the game should know about it already and the content will be presented to the player without even the player requiring or um demanding it invoking it if that makes sense yeah i mean i guess the, the sort of the goal here would be that the player has no idea what's created by the gaming team and what's created by some sort of generated ai well, it just all looks the same, feels the same, and it's there when they want it, right? When they, what they would want, though, is they would want to know the, the, the assets, the objects, whatever, the avatar they see, they would want to know it's unique and it's theirs. They would want to have some sort of, uh, you know, ownership feeling about that object that just came out. So 
you mentioned you know you've got a fairly large scale you know user base trained uh, seventy thousand mile models. How are gaming teams using Scenario? How are they using generative AI for concept production now? Like, what's what's the current st- status of, of this as a piece of the market? Okay, it's very broad, right? It depends. Big uh, big big studios, uh, much smaller teams, indies. It really depends. But if I had to um, structure how people use it, it goes from concepting to in-game assets and to marketing assets. Most people start. Most studios, most devs start using AI as the concept art level. Let's create images and maybe it's going to give us ideas to make these assets the traditional way. And as a matter of fact, more than 90 to 95% of game studios and game developers do use AI today for concepting. And it goes from Midjourney, Daddy, Firefly, mostly Midjourney, to be honest, some like stable diffusion flavor and us. But the real thrill starts when people use us for in-game assets. And then there are two uh, options. Either they have to retouch and edit the images that are made, or it's good enough to be sent straight to the game without any you know, human ed- edits. When that other possibilities, when that other option is available, then, then and we, we start seeing the first examples, then the game can right now generate assets, generate images, generate content in the game, that, that, which is the most exciting part. And then finally, there is another use case, which is very interesting, which is marketing. You know, marketing for games costs money, especially if you're a free-to-play game, it's tricky. Being able to generate thousands of marketing assets that are less sensitive than in-game assets is a real value for games, for game studios. And it requires custom models as well. So again, concepting in-game assets, live runtime assets, and marketing assets. Could you like apply any sort of numbers to like the comp, the you know how common those different use cases are now. Like, are more people using these tools for marketing than in game? Or the vast majority is at the concepting stage right now. I would say like fifty to seventy percent at least, because that's how people can they can engage with the product. They can try the product, see what the you know what's the capabilities and power of that product. Once they they fully understand how, how far they can go. They will go from step one to step two in-game assets to step three marketing assets and so on. So I would say like roughly you know, 50, 60% concepting, 20% in-game assets and like 20% marketing assets is what I would, uh, I would say. Got it. The marketing use, use case, I mean, I, I don't know a single studio that's not using Gen AI for marketing asset production now. I mean, it's just, I, I think every studio is, is doing it. It's a no-brainer. Why would you not? Well... If you're using Gen AI for marketing, you'd better make sure what you generate is very consistent visually to your game. And the overwhelming feedback we got from studios is they, they've all tried everything. They've all tried the main platform, the mid journeys and Dali, Firefly, and so on. They still struggle to generate the style they want. And it, it's actually impossible to front your own style. In other words, you have a style. And you want to find the words, the token that perfectly describe that style. And that's not even possible in, in today in any of the platform. You have to train your own model. And studio do train their own models. But they do it. I mean, they started doing it locally on their own computer with their own GPUs. It's very much like it's open source, local software. It's not collaborative. I think that's where Scenario shines is like, do your own models from any device, anywhere, anytime across your company because we're cloud-based. So yeah, 
people do use it for marketing, but they, the like style consistency is a big challenge. So have you, you've seen studios train their own models like within the organization? There are dozens, if not hundreds, actually, you know, and training, training a model can sound daunting, like, wow, like training, you know, chat GPT or GPT-4 or 3 costs like millions to train, like studio could think it's not for them, but the, the real term is not training, it's more fine tuning. It's taking a model, typically stable diffusion, and just tweaking the model enough so the model will only focus on that specific style of that specific content. Fine tuning requires 10, I mean, for images, 5, 10, 15, 20 images is usually enough for a first fine tune. If it's done right and if the right settings are being applied and it's done in 30, 30 minutes, 20 minutes, and it costs like nothing. I mean, like a few hundred dollars, a few dollars, uh, you know, max, max. So why like studios are getting used to fine tuning and it opens the world of possibilities when you can combine these fine tunes together, combine a character model and a weapon model or a, a you know, a background model and a car model. And then you mix them to, to make the images you're looking for with the right object and the right style. This is kind of like a non sequitur, but do you know why Midjourney is still like gated through Discord? That seems very strange to me. Are they, <laughs> do they have some sort of commercial relationship? Yeah, well, they're not anymore. I mean, they, they started releasing their web app, which they have had a web app for a long time, but it was only for gathering the images that were generated in Discord. Now the web app of Midjourney has been improved to also generate from the web app on the web. It's only for power users so far, but it's expected they will they will expand that. The thing is with Midjourney, and it's an amazing product, so like and probably number one on the market. They target a very like broad audience of creators. We target the much more advanced professional users that require high high degree of customization that Midjourney doesn't allow, at least for now. And we've got any, uh, same goes for Dali, the same goes for Firefly and so on. I don't think the mainstream platform can stay and they have every single mainstream platform will have to propose some sort of customization at some point. And we see it happening with ChatGPT. You can do your own custom GPT, right? It's like, if it's fine tuning ChatGPT, but the same will apply to images and videos and audio voice and 3D models. So we're going to see an explosion of custom models. How many custom GPTs do we have? Like, I don't know, millions, right? Like, I think, I'm not sure OpenAI communicated, probably like millions of custom GPTs have been trained or fine-tuned. Well, the same will go will go on with images and, and the rest. Okay, so we talked about, you know, content production for games and that idea of like the player not prompting for these assets, but these assets being made for them based on their behavioral profiles just by the game itself and those being unique to them, but nonetheless being sort of delivered to the player like at the right time based on their play habits. So, you know, generative AI, obviously there's, there's a tool that is needed for that, but there, there, there are a number of other tools to kind of fulfill that promise, right? To fulfill that objective, which is like, you know, making these things available to the user without them having to ask for that, right? So there's like a classification engine that we need to go into that and the economy management utilities that we need to go into like, okay, how do we balance this thing that we're giving the user? So what does the personalization stack look like? So obviously the, the actual content production tool, the generative AI tool for that, that's, that's one piece of it. What, what's the rest of the stack look like? What, I mean, what components exist now and what need to be brought to market to fulfill that vision of like, hey, the player's playing and there's new, unique, bespoke content created for them that fits perfectly into their gameplay style, makes the game better for them. They didn't have to ask for it. 
but nonetheless is totally unique to that. So one way to look at this question is which formats can be personalized, which like between text, audio, video, 3D, and so on. And right now, text can be personalized pretty well. CF custom GPT companies like InWorld doing, you know, uh, AI NPCs with a high degree of, you know, NPC personalization images that start to be quite personalized. Um, and that's what's what right now we mostly focus on just like fine tuning stability fusion for essentially images. Audio is like highly personalized. It can train a voice in like 30 seconds and you can with like just minutes or maybe half an hour of audio, you can have like the perfect voice is your voice or like a custom voice can be, uh, can be used. Videos and 3D models cannot be easily personalized yet. It's there, it's coming, but it's not consistently curating custom content yet. It's pretty rough. Typically for videos, you would be limited to like a few seconds per sequence. Uh, you cannot generate a consistent video of like 20 seconds or 30 seconds. It's gonna, it, it, your video is gonna melt literally. And the 3D models you can do with JDI are pretty rough. So for these two formats, we stay at the, at the concepting stage mostly. But for the other formats, yes, like some tools and features are available for a high degree of personalization. If that makes sense. The one issue we have right now is text and images and audio and now video is coming. None of it is connected yet. Companies have been developing product and features that are very isolated. And so a developer that wants to like enable personalization in a game or in a product would have to tap into maybe four or five different products with four or five, you know, subscription, UIs, learning curve, and so on. And that's not sustainable on the market. So there, what we should expect is some sort of um, merger or a fusion of these integration of these different features and tools. So when you want to make a, a character, you don't have to go to one tool for the face, one tool for the voice, one tool for the uh, dialogue, the content. You should have it in, in one place. I want that character with that voice, that tone, and that's the, the type of content they should talk about in one place. It's not there yet on the market. And, um, and I can tell you, like, people are spending so much money in different subscriptions. One for Midjourney, one for ChatGPT, and another one, and another one. If there is a one-stop shop uh, for gamers, that's a lot of value. And that's the one opportunity we're, we're chasing, actually, step-by-step. Step. So going, going back to the use cases, I mean, I think... To my mind, the obvious use case for art production is with generative AI tools is live ops, right? So, I mean, that's a huge cost center. To your point, having worked at a bunch of games where the economy was basically driven by live ops, you know, it's called the content treadmill, right? Like you're just pumping out new content like week over week. That that feels like a, a pretty obvious use case, like in a very exciting use case, right? I mean, that can save a tremendous amount of money. Other obvious use cases, open world environments, right? So just having the art be created as the users progressing through the open world. But what about the non-obvious use cases? Like, have you encountered any use cases? Like, I think one maybe non-obvious use cases, maybe uh, what you were describing before, like an NPC, right? Like perfectly trained, like NPCs that have their own sort of like unique personalities. That to me, that I wouldn't have guessed that. I mean, that, that wouldn't be like kind of top of my mind if I think about, you know, this technology. Have you encountered any use cases that have surprised you? Like ways that people have used these tools that have surprised you? I'm, I'm always amazed whether I'm surprised. Not, not really. I, I tend not to be surprised anymore because AI is basically nonstop and crazy stuff being shipped. What's the most interesting use case we've seen? For me, it's definitely these new gameplays that are being invented by game studios by putting Gen AI in the end of the users. 
that's so much more powerful than I mean enabling an artist, enabling a game developer to to make faster or better assets. That that's great, but enabling the player themselves requires an additional level of uh, structure, architecture in the game. There is a company called LLC. It's a Web three game studio, pretty small. You know, just starting uh, making a tycoon game where you have to build your own city. It's kind of it looks like SimCity ish. And there is an economy in the game and you have like to build factories and, you know, create uh, like mine commodities and so on. Well, the buildings are pre- the isometric buildings, SimCity-like buildings, they are being now generated by the players. So the way the factory looks, the way the building, the apartments uh, looks is initially make, made by the player. So I'm, I'm sure you played SimCity like anybody else, right? I mean, I did. What if you can choose the way your city looks? That could be uh, pretty amazing. That's one example. We have many others. Yeah, it's really cool. I mean, I've seen a lot of game concepts that are driven by generative AI that it's interesting because I think because of the decreased production costs, people are willing to be a lot more experimental with the game mechanic, right? In a way that you wouldn't be if, if you, especially if you're like a startup studio, you've raised a little bit of money. I mean, you can't go full bore off the rails experimental if you've got just enough seed money or pre-seed money to make one prototype. And then so you have to stick with kind of like, you know, the red ocean categories with like 10% innovation. And if the most avant-garde off the wall idea you have could be prototypes very cheaply with generative AI tools, why not do that? It's, it's really exciting, I think. Yeah. I mean, sometimes we even have some extreme feedback or extreme example in one case someone said uh, well i used to spend 25k in contents with different contractors and stuff and because you scenario made something so much tailored i was able to make more or less the same thing for 29 bucks so from 20k to 29 bucks sure it, I, i'm not sure it's the exact math they, they, might, they might have some other cost around the 29 you know bucks a month subscription but it's still like a 100x uh, reduction in cost, which makes me think we are leaving money on the table here, but we're also learning from, from these. It's, it's a pretty drastic uh, revolution, yes. Yeah, well, I mean, some of these art teams, I mean, you go to a studio and they'll have like a whole production center built up in, you know, usually, usually a lower cost of labor country. And managing that, it's overhead in it of itself, right? You've got a huge team you've got to manage at, at some point, right? And, and so that, that's just overhead. That's just complexity. Yeah, so collaboration and GDI and game assets are a very interesting topic. There's a lot of friction today. Contractor or even in-house artist makes something. It goes into some, usually like a PDF or report. Report is being sent to PM or game designer. Then they have to evaluate, you know, they have to comment. Then it's being sent back to the artist, which is starting again, or the contractor. Well, for Gen AI, we are getting closer to a point where game designer will just like mask out the face of the character and say like, oh, I love it, but make it look just a little bit happier or like more aggressive uh, stance. And the AI would just adapt and, and modify that, you know, initial content that was made by uh, someone else, even without the expertise and the knowledge that were initially in the hands of the of the artist. So it's going to make the process much more fluid when it comes to like crafting the assets or the, the content. Yeah, right. So the feedback loop is basically immediate, right? Yeah, because Jenny, I would work right away. Like the GPU will be uh, fired up and then, 
it might not be perfect step, you know, first try, first prompts, but you would have immediate feedback on that idea or that like the, the evolution you need to uh, take for that asset. Right. In like a prototyping phase. It, you know, as, as we make the point about the, the art teams aren't, they tend to not be co-located. Right. And, and so there's a time zone problem, right? So it's like, okay, I sent some feedback and while well, the art team is sleeping. And so they'll take a stab at it tomorrow when I'm sleeping and then I'll get it when I wake up. And so like a whole day has passed between my commentary and their, you know, iteration. Yep. And I'm just describing a way, a scenario where the PM or game designer does the edit, but what if the two get on the phone, on the zoom, and then they, the designer would say, can you make that background this way, that way? Can you customize that character for me? And the artist or the prompter the user of the AI could do it live, you know, in front of the customer or in front of the product, the game designer, you know, right away. And then that, so the designer might not know exactly how to use the AI, how to prompt, how to like train and so on, but they would ask a question that they would get an immediate answer from, you know, and after a while you start to realize, well, okay, like after like a few back and forth, once you know how to guide and properly control the AI, you go to a conclusion where the AI could be in the game. The generative capabilities might be in the game because you know exactly what settings, what parameters work best after a few uh, back and forth prototyping iteration. Right. I think it's also like that evokes an evolution, not just in the way that the you know game designers interact with the whatever production facility is creating the art, but how does that role evolve? Because it feels like if the ability to do that basically shifts is abstracted away to the point where they can sort of play around with it in real time. I mean, how does that free up their time to be creative and to, to apply their craft, right? Like how, how does a game designer role evolve as these tools become more sophisticated and, and more studios start ado adopting them? I'm not sure anyone has the final answer right now. We, we're discovering, we're exploring us and the, the markets so fast. What I can tell you though, and that to echo with the big controversy on AI and jobs, what I've seen so far when talking to studios is studios tend to keep all of their team or from what I've seen, most of their team and they enable their, their team to, to do more versus, okay, let's do the same with half, half the team we used to have. So it's really more about empowerment than like cost optimization right now. However, studios have been moving way slower than indies and indie would typically test everything, spend nights and weekends uh, trying so many tools. They would take risks, especially on the copyright and the legal side of things. The studio would not have the same speed and the same motion of like testing everything and taking risks. So indies are being reinvented or indies reinvent themselves faster than studios at this stage. And it's been only one year. So you cannot expect a studio in just a six, nine months, one year time frame to completely reinvent how game designers are involved in the game. Indies nowadays, they, they start shipping games without like in days or weeks in where it took them months before, just because they were limited by the art side. And we, we, we get that feedback nonstop. It's crazy. Yeah, I mean, your point about jobs is, is an interesting one because I, I, I mean, I feel like these kind of tools, I agree with you, I don't, I don't really see them as necessarily like just reducing costs through, you know, labor force elimination, right? I think what you'd want to do is just produce more, right? So if these let you produce more, then give these to your artists and let and just let them be, you know, I wrote this piece a while back 
called exoskeletons, not cyborgs. Like the idea here is you're not trying to replace human beings. You're trying to give them tools to just be faster and more productive. And one of the problems too with, with game art and marketing art too, but, but I think game art specifically, because I think, you know, people have this like romanticized vision of like working on a game. And a lot of times it's way more tedious than you'd ever imagine. Like, I, I don't know if you saw that, that, that show Mystic Quest. Uh, it was, uh, I want to say it was HBO, but I think they got so many aspects of working at a gaming studio right, where like the revenue guy was like, well, he was like the most important person in the studio and he basically designed all the monetization mechanics. And they had like the disgusting QA room with the couch that's probably been there for like 15 years and never been cleaned. What people don't really understand about being a PM, especially, especially a producer for a game, it's you're just in Excel all the time, trying to like balance the economy. And with game art, I mean, I think people think like, oh, I'd love to go work on a game. I could create some of the artwork that's in the game and people will see my product, the fruits of my labor. But, but 90% of the time, they're going to be working on uh, textures or like the shoes or something that an NPC is wearing. It's not going to be like the, the exciting final boss you're designing like his axe. And I think if you can outsource that tedious work to tools that can do it in an autonomous way, I mean, that just opens up the really great creative opportunities that people actually really want to do. Yes. The feedback I got from a user, a German user, I think recently, a few weeks ago, just paraphrasing, and he was saying too many AI companies are today focusing on eye-catchy, fancy demos, and you see them on Twitter nonstop, all the time, bing, 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 nonstop. But what game studios need is really to automate the mundane tasks like texture generation. That's a, well, this is a one example. And then free up more time for the most exciting, uh, you know, creations as well. That AI might not be at a, at a level where they can, where AI can satisfy the most exciting, complex part of the game art creation. But because it's boring, because it's mundane, these products and workflows, they don't make the headlines on Twitter and GitHub and Hugging Face. It's a weird industry right now, like a dopamine driven industry. People tend to see what's exciting. Oh, wow, I can do this. But it's not connected to a workflow or a real production related use case yet. But we're getting there. I want to talk kind of like long-term vision. So the gaming as an entertainment category, gaming as an, as an art form, what happens with gaming when, when this personal value function is realized? When a game to a person is an utterly, absolutely personalized experience, what happens to gaming? I mean, does that become, I mean, I guess, you know, the Doomer take on that would be like, oh, everyone's, you know, you're stuck in the game. It's, it's like you get matrixified. Because it's just this perpetual stream of content that's so alluring and so enticing that you can't detach. That I mean, I don't share that vision, but I, I just think it's there's a, certainly a step change, but probably just like a non-linear, continuous function of how much more fun and engaging games become. The, I guess the opposite side of that is that people just become accustomed to it. It's like, yeah, of course, games are totally personalized to me. That I've got the same twenty percent of my day or ten percent of my day to dedicate to, to engaging with gaming content as I had five years ago. It's just the games have gotten so much better. And so I'm still consuming the same amount of content. It's just, it's just uh, the content has gotten so much better. And I expect, I demand that the, the experience is personalized to me. What, what's your take? Where do you fall on this? Well, I'm falling on the later so far. Otherwise, like people will be stuck in Minecraft forever and ever, right? And it's like Minecraft is how, like 400 million people. So. Where it goes, it can go far. I think people will, will definitely expect their own you know, experience to be highly personalized and it's going to start small and it's going to take years. It's not going to be instant. It's going to start with your avatar. It's going to start with your outfit. You know, It's not going to start with every single 
building, car, object, potion, whatever boss in the game is AI generated. That's complex, especially in 3D. It's still highly, highly complex. So it's going to take years. What this go, however, is like other industries will learn from this, like they have learned from gaming for the past 50, 10, 15, 20 years. You know, gaming has been traditionally the industry spearheading new, the use of new technologies, whether it's 3D, VR, GPUs, of course, like, uh, come on. So uh, like that kind of AI enabled player generated contents is an example that will be used for many other products online and for marketing and for uh, like everything like websites and navigation and so on, selling, you know, e-commerce, what else can you think about? So I, I think gaming will definitely be a good, uh, a good example for a much deeper transformation. Right. I mean, it's such a good point. Gaming is the tip of the spear for new consumer products adoption, right? It just, it just always is, right? Cause it's so mass market. It's the ultimate mass market consumer category. Yeah. The, an interesting one would be like, can you do like personalized Hollywood videos, like movies, when you're on Netflix and you start, like you rent your show, can that show be personalized to you? Uh, what would be personalized first? The face of the character, their voice, the language, probably, I mean, it's like, you know, translation, but like when you go into like the, I don't know, the story, can it be personalized? We're going to get there at some point. Probably it's like, what I'm talking about is probably like, I don't know, 10, 20 years ahead, who knows, but localizing a series, not to a country, but to like a, and the household could be interesting. Well, I can say that Netflix, based on uh, my consumption, uh, the, their own proprietary content is personalized to exactly what I don't like. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they know, they know you for sure. I've been really impressed by the way that you've built in the open. You've done a really good job of sort of like building in public. I wanted to talk to you about that because it, it's really fascinating. A lot of startups are very reluctant to kind of broadcast what they're doing and to share sort of like in real time the advances they're making. And I, I wanted to get just to understand your philosophy there because it's really fascinating. And I think it's been really refreshing to, to watch you do that. Yeah. And it's not always easy because you got to always communicate and you, you got to be ready to face criticism because when you build in the open, you definitely make mistakes that tend to be not noticed faster than when you take the time to craft everything until you release. And so we get some criticism and like we tend to ship very fast and it's not perfect. But the good thing is, that feedback we're getting, the positive one and the negative one, is how you win in AI. Let's be frank. Models, they're everywhere. They're open source and they're for free. Like they're, they're on the hanging phase. They're on GitHubs. You know, you have a lot of good models you can build upon. So there are many ways to build a mode, but one mode for a business is to get the user feedback before others. So you improve your products faster than others. I'm not sure I've seen that at that speed in any other industry I've been working on before, including drones and um, I was in biotech, so a completely different thing. But the speed at which you need to get feedback is very important in AI these days. If you get feedback faster, you improve your product faster, people use it more, and you learn from that usage data to build a data moat. So I think it's, it's, very, it's very important to build in the open. Again, not easy. We, we're in January, right? Like 15, we shipped a major update two days before Christmas or three days before Christmas while everybody was going out on, on a holiday. Like devs went crazy about it. They were like, are you out of your mind? Like, what if it breaks? And I was like, yo, you mean you guys been the code? How confident are you in the code? And like, yeah, we're fairly confident. Well, let's ship it, you know? Why, why, why would we even wait two weeks? It's such a long time in AI. And as a matter of fact, over the Christmas break, we saw 3x metrics increase 
you know, model traffic images, users, paid users, new users, images, and so on. Well, I get two weeks of great data to learn from as we come back from the, from the holidays versus if we just started shipping it today. I think it's a core principle of scenario and I hope we can keep living with it for as long as possible. But it's fun. It's quite fun. What a space. If you're on Twitter and you look at the news, you can drown. Like it, you can drown yourself with so much is happening. An AI, a JAI founder has to really maintain a high discipline and focus, not like completely turn off social media. You, you, you learn so much from them, but you can really get, lose yourself in the constant flow of news that are being released on like, you know, Twitter and, and GitHub and hugging face these days. So it's a balance. Yeah. It's an incredibly fast paced space, but I've enjoyed following you and following your journey and i'm really appreciative for your time today so speaking of building in public where can people find you where can people watch you build in public it's mostly twitter i have my own accounts emmanuel underscore 2m otherwise the company accounts at scenario underscore gg but otherwise we post on linkedin we have a change log on the website and in the web app so somebody logging into the website or web app would typically be a, a notification that some changes have been uh, have been pushed and I'm very, very interested to get any uh, open questions on Twitter and LinkedIn about what we do, where we go, and where we are at. Great. Well, I hope this podcast generates some of those questions. Emmanuel, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it. And uh, I wish you a very happy 2024. Thank you, Eric. Happy 2024.